This is Steve Clark, President and CEO of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association. I'm here with VP of Operations, Kerry Miller, and you're listening to the MRA Podcast, Together We Win, where we give you bites of information in podcast form. All right, we are back with our next episode of Together We Win, the MRA Podcast. Kerry, you know, we've been talking a lot about restaurant growth. Uh, during the pandemic, a number of places closed, unfortunately lost, um, you know, actually probably 22% of the industry at the height of the pandemic. But it seems that a number of restaurants are opening uh, new locations across the city and across Massachusetts. It seems that, you know, the industry is truly back and we're actually in an expansion mode right now. Yeah, I couldn't be more excited about what we're talking about today because I remember about five years ago, somebody said, hey, let's go down to the waterfront in Somerville. And I went, there's a waterfront in Somerville. <laughs> and over the course of the last five years, you drive to Somerville, you drive to the seaport, and it's like a new building happening on, on, a, on a daily basis. And with that comes new restaurants and new opportunity for restaurateurs uh, in, in, these, in, these, in these processes. We've got great, two great people here today to talk to that about, for sure. Absolutely. We always, uh, you know, at MRA, we always get a lot of questions about growth and aspiring restaurateurs. How do they get into their second location? How do they get into their first location? How do they get into a lifestyle center? So uh, really excited about today's guests. And uh, without further ado, let's let's introduce them and, and get them uh, part of the conversation so people just aren't watching you and I banter back mm -hmm. and forth. Uh, ladies first, of course. Thank um, you. We have Liz Ryan. She's the vice president of regional leasing at Federal Realty. Uh, better known as the, the proprietor and owner of uh, Assembly Row and also Linden Square and Wellesley, correct? Yep, among correct? others, yep. Absolutely. And, of course, we have chef owner Chris Damien, Papagayo, SIP, Civility Social House, an unbelievable restaurateur uh, that's had a lot of success in Boston yeah, too and, kind, and neighboring suburbs. So, Chris, thank you very much for coming in. And Thanks also, uh, Chris has brought us a little bit of food as well. Uh, before we get into opening a restaurant, you need to have a good product. So, Always Chris, true. what do we have in front of us here? So this is um, a couple of um, street tacos that I brought. Um, one is with adobo chicken. Make a marinade, sear it over uh, hot coals, and then just slice it. And uh, the other one is a braised short rib with guajilla chilies. I'm going to start with that one first. I'm going to go over to that side while we, uh, while we dig into things. So yeah. I'm looking at the, the guacamole on the top. And if I've got one favorite thing that I've ever had at Papagayo, it was the tableside guac. And uh, you guys probably would... I don't know if you introduced it to, to the population, but everybody's doing it now. Nobody's doing it as good as you guys no, do it. I appreciate that. We were really fortunate in our first restaurant when we rolled that out. And it ended up being we had three different people just running cots in the dining room. Never expected it to be as popular as it was. Cocktail and some guac. That's it. It, it was, it was you perfect. Need. So, Liz, as we talk about the evolution of lifestyle centers, um, we're very fond of talking about restaurants. It's the it's the the last bastion of social interaction. You know, mm -hmm. everything is on the phone these days. Everything is outside. And, you know, people crave human interaction. And what better place to do that is a restaurant. From a lifestyle center perspective, how does that drive the businesses you try to attract and, and try to build that? And, and what goes into a successful lifestyle center? I mean, Assembly Row is one of the most successful ones probably in the Northeast. So what went into building that? What goes into the thought process of, of making that happen? So we, before we start sort of reaching out to restaurant tenants or, um, you know, engaging in sort of how, what we uh, envision from a merchandising standpoint, we take a step back and we look at who is the, what's the market that we're serving? Who's that customer? What does that profile, customer profile look like? And what do they want? What are the, what's missing in a market? Um, what are the uses that will resonate with the people that we serve? And so we literally will sit down with a blank, Plan and in the case of assembly, we identify you know these this is these are the locations where we envision restaurants being. When you're working on these larger mixed use buildings, you have to 
um, think about, you know, venting and the infrastructure that goes into it. So when a building isn't existing at that moment, we have to think about, okay, these corners are where we think restaurants would do well. Um, And these are the types of uses that we think would resonate again with the customers that we serve. So then we compile a list of tenants that we think, you know, have a strong track record or might offer something unique that, you know, that would uh, sort of put us on the map from an offering standpoint. And and we get to work from there. Uh, But to your point, you know, restaurants have really become sort of an anchor tenant in our line and on our side of things. And so we really take a thoughtful approach with how we merchandise restaurants and how we engage with our restaurant partners. And, you know, we value those relationships. Yeah, a couple of things. I think first and foremost, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about the fact that retail has gone the way of the internet and those and those baseline things are restaurants, restaurant driven right now. And you guys, you guys, uh, what's that saying from uh, Man on Fire, painted a masterpiece on, you can go, you can go to Assembly Row, and I'm not just saying this to say it, but you can walk around the outside of the thing and have an incredibly different experience in every one of those those doors you walk into. You can spend some time at Papagayo. You can go to Earl's. You can hit Legal's. You can hit River Bar. I mean, and around the corner, you've got Fuji. I mean, so for anybody that's going to looking for an afternoon experience or something like that, it's like going to, uh, you know, going to a little town in Europe and having a whole different ex- different experience. And so just the way that you situated those restaurants, there has to be a science involved. Yeah, thank you. We we take a very thoughtful approach, and not just with restaurants, with all of the, sure. the tenants that we put into our projects. Um, assembly is really has become a neighborhood, and so when people refer to it as, you know, a shopping center, I always stop them and say, "This is really a small city that we've built, and will continue to build." So, um, we are very uh, pleased with the success of the restaurants. Those are one of our highest, you know, per square foot performers in terms of the different categories of tenants, and. Um, it just really strengthens the sense of community when you go to assembly, when you see all of the restaurant activity. We get a lot of questions from restaurateurs of how do I get into a place like that? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, do I have to have a known location and do I have to be a known name or can I go and pitch an idea? You know, what, what's the different thought processes of bringing? Because there's so many different choices of restaurateurs that you have, so many high quality restaurateurs. How do you choose who do you pursue? Do, they, do you get pursued? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a natural partnership? Talk about that process a little bit. So we, it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, we are absolutely open to supporting, you know, first time owner operator, restaurant owner operators. Um, you know, if you're a chef who wants to, you know, try something new and open a restaurant, I would encourage you to put together a thorough business plan, a pro forma that can help us understand the financial, um, you know, side of how you're looking at your business operations. Um, you know, when sometimes I'll talk to prospective restaurant uh, operators and they'll say, you know, we, ha- we don't have a design package yet, but we're envisioning it looking and feeling sort of like this. And I'll say, well, can you even just go online and find photos of existing restaurants that you would use as sort of a, a vision, put together a vision board, essentially, and just help us understand the look, the feel, the quality of, of what it is you are thinking of doing. Send us a sample menu so we can understand, you know, obviously what you're thinking from a food offering perspective. Um, but, you know, we, we are willing, as, a, as an owner landlord, we are willing to work with tenants who might not necessarily have a proven track record yet, but we know that they have really good potential based on their personal ex- and professional experience. Um, so 
Yes. So, so that's usually if it's a first time restaurant owner operator, that's sort of the approach that we take. Um, if there are chefs that are well known that have clearly have a proven track record that we know would be what we call a game changer tenant for one of our properties, call it assembly. We will absolutely, you know, pursue them and figure out a way to put something together that works for everybody. Chris, you went in early on. So you were one of those game changing people that had a, have, have a brand that, uh, when in, what was it made assembly? Because when, when you went into assembly, it doesn't look like it looks like now. Well, it's interesting you say that as Liz is talking. I'm trying to think back of when we originally committed to going in there. And I know it was before our first Papagayo was open. Wow. Wow. So we committed with um, one of her uh, people on her team from Washington, D.C. He was referred to us because we were starting to grow up here. We had a number of different brands running. And Papagayo in South Boston was about to be open. And we met Stu. Mm-hmm. And um, he's explaining what the vision of the development was like. And we're like, oh, so you mean like the Burlington Mall? He was like, yeah, but not that. And I said, oh, you mean like this one? Uh, yeah, but not that. So a month later, flew down to D.C. He took us around to the properties they have. And I was like, oh, I get it now. Because you can, we, we didn't have anything like that in our markets up here. So the density, the residential component, the neighborhood, um, the identity of different brands all coexisting together. I was like, I can see it now. Yeah, days, now you say they make, make connections. We have family down in D.C. We get down a lot. There's, a, there's Resden. There's, there's all of these communities that are, are not unlike Assembly Row all, mm-hmm. all together. So I can see where you would look at that and go, holy crap, this is a great place for a restaurant to be right. located at. I was asking questions that like seem so far-fetched now because you see where the project is at. They go, what are you going to do about the element or crime or any of that stuff? And I uh, like... Yeah, don't worry. You'll see it in a few years. You'll understand it. It takes care of itself. It, it yeah. takes care of itself. And it's, it's just fascinating to see what, where I grew up and, you know, used to patronize the, the marketplace side. That was the mall for us. That and Meadow Glen Mall. And now you say what Assembly Row is. It's totally different. It's going to be an incredibly uh, restaurant community down there because you look at the names of the people that are restaurateurs at Assembly right, no, Row right now. Andy's down there, and, you know, the Legos folks are down there, and the free folks from Earl's from Canada, Canada there. So you got to be able to have a, you know, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing for you, but there's got to be, like, a great relationship between all of the restaurateurs, and I'm sure it's a good thing for you. Oh, it's a great thing for us, and we, we embrace those relationships. We want to be involved with our tenants. We want to help promote their businesses, but we also want them to feel a sense of community among each other. Yeah. Now, Chris, you're, uh, as an operator, you've... Um, you know, you've been in the city of Boston, you've been in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. When you go to open up a new location, what do you look for? What are some of the things that an, a community has that attracts you to go there when you're looking for your next opportunity? First and foremost, I look for it basically re-engineering the back end of a deal. Where's the void in, in concept-wise? So if you take Assembly Row, there wasn't really any Mexican at the time. And even before we did that, we did a concept called Burger Dive that was on the pad site entering Assembly Row. Mm-hmm. That was the first leased space mm-hmm. that opened in the development. And truthfully, it was ahead of its time because we were trying to do like hand-formed press burgers from scratch. And we didn't get a chance to educate the consumer. We thought there was a void. And you see burger shops everywhere now, right? But we thought there was a huge void in that fresh, grass-fed, fast-casual counter service model and uh it was something that we had to change i think it was 75 different procedures pricing purchasing portions all things to target the consumer effectively and then after we did those 75 things he said can't do anymore because we realized we would have ended up with something that we didn't want and that wouldn't have been the concept 
So walking a fine line, you might be a trailblazer in one point, but you could go broke thinking that you're a trailblazer. So you got to adapt and find out, okay, the consumer wants this. How do we accomplish both things and make them happy and survive at the same time? And it was a super, super successful concept. Um, and that's one thing. One big thing is finding out where the food void is. The second part is where, you, where is your hiring infrastructure? Mm -hmm. So with the orange line that's there, there's, a, there's access to trains. You'd see the density of different cities around it that you know you can have a hiring base. And, and I've learned this from being up in New Hampshire, having problems hiring people with restaurants. And you say, I don't want to be in New Hampshire trying to hire anybody. And that, that's one of the benefits of looking at that. Even if you're in Boston, getting there is nothing. Orange line drops you off. Absolutely. So oh, that's, yeah. that's, those are probably the two major things. Relationships with vendors and all that stuff are easy. Um, it's not that far out of town. And, and, and uh, even with local growers, we can find a lot of different things that deliveries and things like that. So access to product is not an issue for us. Absolutely. No, go ahead, Gary. That's amazing that site, site selection is based on the ability to staff the restaurant these days. But there's been multiple restaurants up in New Hampshire. I remember 900 Degrees went into Portsmouth and they opened up. They spent 1.5 to open up a restaurant there and they had to shut it down because they couldn't staff it yep. on the opening. I mean, so, right? Scary so, I mean, stuff. Yeah, so you, you, there better be some thought process and having the orange line come through where you're, where you're going to be opening, you know, a multi-million dollar property in order to the fact that you can actually put people in to serve, serve the folks that are coming through or cook yeah. the food. You talk about serving the needs of the consumer. Um, how, what's the difference, in, you know, Boston's a small city, small, mm -hmm. Massachusetts is a small state, but what's the, the customer needs of a, of a downtown Boston location? versus a suburban location. Is it, does it differ? It, it differs somewhat, but I, I think there's some adaptability for brands. And, and I'll give you an example of like the restaurant I have, Sip Wine Bar, okay? At the time when we got first involved with Federal, um, our vision wasn't that restaurant. We didn't think that would be the place that would be the first restaurant opening in the project. Mm -hmm. We thought Mexican was more mainstream, more fun, more casual. And, and that's sort of why we said, well, we use that brand. We, we operated a number of different brands over the years. And part of it also works with their master plan. They don't want to put a Mexican guy next to a guy who's sort of Mexican mm -hmm. and the seafood place next to another guy who's half seafood. So it, it's sort of like a balancing act for both of us. Say, well, can you do this? And then it's also about price points. If I came in and I was serving $68 steaks, it wouldn't work. Not, not for that location, not for that style of restaurant. So there's a blend of all these different things and there's dialogue that we have from tenant to landlord. And they say, well, you might want to take that big stuffed lobster off the menu mm -hmm. because you're not going to sell it. You know, and price points play a role. They do boy, play a role. But you talk about, the, talk about the relationship between landlord and, and, and owner changing over the course of the last four years. I mean, we had a series, we had, and you and I talked about that a little bit earlier on. We had two years where you were you had to talk to folks about mm -hmm. how do we keep get you to the back end of the end of this thing. So it's a two part question. That's changed, but the variability on the the level of expertise on an owner is incredibly vast in the in the, in, in restaurants. I mean, you're a very you're an exceptionally great uh, operator and, and always have been. You've got new people that come into the market that want to be a part of that too. So mm -hmm. those. Those conversations that you're having with people about getting started and continuing on have to be different from person to person. They do, it does vary. Um, and I think I just, I'd like to touch a little bit on one of the things you just mentioned as it relates to the relationship side of things coming out of COVID. You know, the, the, that two-year window was obviously a nightmare for everybody. But one of the, the biggest takeaways, I think, as, a, as an, uh, an owner that we had or as a company 
is the importance of those relationships that we have. We worked with all of our tenants to ensure that we got through this together. Um, we, uh, you know, put a lot of our, our resources to helping, you know, promote their businesses when they reopened. We have a dedicated marketing team at Assembly Row that, you know, boots on the ground. They work with all of our tenants day in and day out. So I think that coming out of that mess, a lot of these uh, restaurant owners really are, they're looking at the relationships they have with their landlords a little bit differently. And, you know, is it truly a partnership or is it just someone I send my rent check to every sure. month? And so I do think it's incredibly important to, you know, work with our tenants and have good relationships with them. Absolutely. And I think a great part about all that too is it, as sad as it is that the challenge of, of COVID closed restaurants, it also created opportunity. Yep for restaurants that were able or willing to go into an existing space where a lot of the infrastructure is already set up for them and adjust and make a new concept. So tragedy creates opportunity as well. There was a lot of restaurants that were sunsetting and they didn't realize it and, and the pandemic just got them there quicker. Mm -hmm. yep. And an opportunity for new, better operators to come in with more, more invigorated to do different concepts and different stuff, I think was a good thing. Right for the mm -hmm. industry. Yeah. And there's some people that made it through the pandemic and then they're like, you know what? I don't know if I could do that again. And, right. and, and so the pandemic didn't drive them out. But 18 months later, they said, you know what? I think I want to I I move on. Or the second generation doesn't want it or what have you. And so we're seeing a lot of turnover in the industry. And we, you know, we have the, the, the privilege of representing restaurateurs and, and everyone loves restaurants and everyone wants restaurants in their communities. But we often get questions from cities and towns. How do I bring more restaurants into my city or XYZ location closed? How do I attract restaurateurs? As a restaurateur who goes out and looks where they can expand, what are some things that cities and towns can do to make themselves more attractive to operators trying to come into them? In my experience, the permitting process in any given town can be sometimes easy and sometimes a nightmare. And, it, and for a lot of operators or restaurant owners, no matter what it is, there's a level of intimidation mm -hmm. because they're not really sure. They're not like a builder that goes and pulls permits all the they time. They can't fight City Hall, but they want to fight City Hall. Not Boston City Hall, all Sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And, you know, you could be into a project, and I've experienced this, where, like, uh, the, the rules changed. Mm -hmm. well, the plans were all set, and it was accepted. And then, okay, now it's time for the inspection. You're ready to open. Oh, you can't do this. You need to do this. I'm like, well, it was approved. So... Ways of streamlining it, ease um, relationships. Usually there are people with the Chambers of Commerce that do help. Um, and there's some, sometimes they understand, like your back's to the wall, you have all your money tied up in a project and you're not monetizing it. And you have your landlord calling you like, when, when are you going to open? When are you going to open? I'm waiting for this. And, and ironically, it's like uh, any challenge that you have, it's just like you keep driving at it, keep driving at it. And sooner or later you cross the bump, but it's just like... <laughs> You just take a deep breath and keep pushing forward. But I would really say like the permitting process and the ease of it, even applications that now, like even the city of Summer has done a lot with citizen serve, which is their online format. So it makes it a lot easier. The less in person stuff that you can deal with is saves time. An hour for me going to and from city hall keeps me in the trenches, helps me operate better, helps me be a face of a brand as opposed to standing in line saying, here's my check for my annual liquor license. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the stuff they're doing with technology has helped. Um, I just think that that's the one thing that cities and towns can really do for the owner, the restaurant owner, is make it easy for them. Absolutely. And because th th that's some of the messages that we've put out to the cities and towns as well. Is, and I don't think they realize that 
you know, you're paying for the architect to come to the community meeting. And then the community person that says, I don't like that tree over there. And then you have to come back with another rendering. And then, you know, you're paying everyone to be there and you're, right. you're paying for a restaurant that's not generating any revenue. You know, it's, uh, it's one of the hurdles of municipal government that we try to get them to a spot of at least understanding the process they're putting restaurateurs through because it's costing money. And it's a benefit to them as well, because with the meals tax that the cities are getting, most, most do, and um, even employment giving people in their town an opportunity to have a job in their town and supporting it, kids in the schools, places to go, you know? So uh, you would think that in the whole idea, it would be a, a much easier road. It's, so it's got to be easier working with federal or somebody like that because they've got a lot of that stuff built out into, into what they've already done as far as the development of, of the project, right, with the, with the city. And I, I know Somerville probably wasn't really easy early on for you folks, right? You know, early on, no, but we have clearly proven ourselves, uh, you know, uh, but we also today have such a great relationship with them. Everything for the most part is streamlined. As uh, Chris mentioned, it's a, again, I keep using the word partnership, but I, again, it's it, these partnerships is what creates the long-term success for, for people. And so I think that having this relationship with the city has allowed us to get, perm, you know, turn permits quickly, you know, generally four to six weeks on average is what awesome. we're seeing. Um, the liquor license uh, process has been fairly, you know, streamlined as well. So I do think that, uh, you know, having, working with a larger landlord, a larger owner like Federal helps cut through some of that red tape that some of these other, um, you know, restaurant owners might otherwise face. Chris, are you seeing that it would affect you, <clears throat> excuse me, just based on the kind of the way the new clientele is dealing with food, right? A lot of it's going out the door. You know, a lot of it really doesn't, you don't have the staff necessarily to do, you know, a, a full service kind of uh, environment. Are you looking in, in your head or in future concepts thinking about, you know, making it more counter service driven, more out the door driven? And how would that impact the size of a footprint? And because we, we're hearing that, right? We're hearing that there are companies that are doing it now. Yeah. Smaller square footages, less dining room space, more productivity per square foot in the back of the house. Sure. That's generating the money. Um, I would venture a guess that uh, even, even with technology, um, handhelds at tables eliminates every three, uh, three servers eliminates a server because they can handle more because the steps back and forth from the sure. table to ring something in, it's about productivity. If I can stand here and handle two stations, I eliminate a guy. And it's not that we don't want to hire. It's just that the expenses of trying to find them, retain them, and even enforcing your standards, if they're too difficult, punctuality, and you write somebody up and then they decide, you know, the next day they're late, they're across the street working for your, let's say, your neighborhood partner that night because yeah. we're in that type of a bind. So to answer your question, yes, I've done that actually. And, and we looked at that with ingredients that were perishables through COVID that we'd say, okay, we're buying this. And if we can't move it just based on volume, we have to re-engineer menus. And so you're using products that you be multifaceted. Maybe it's like if you're using a, a piece of cod or something like that, you're using it for a taco, you're using it for an entree, you, you're, you're multi-purposing the product. So at least now you can get volume, which also keeps your relationship going with your vendors. They, they have a reason to stop the truck at your restaurant. Um, but yeah, I, I really believe that, that even um, when you talk about ingredients and production lists and so on and so forth to accomplish a menu, Stream, strip it back a little bit makes it a lot easier. You got to have stuff that travels too now because a lot of yeah. it's going out the door, right? You want to make sure it shows up in the yeah. doorstep the way. Are you seeing any of that compression of the restaurant space? 
We are a little bit. Um, one of the things that's become incredibly uh, important is, of course, outdoor seating. And when we design our, our, our spaces, how, do we, how are we thinking about that outdoor space to really uh, you know, encourage people to spend time at the restaurants? We also are seeing a lot of these, uh, like Shake Shack, for example, um, Union Square Donuts, where we intentionally helped them design you know, storefronts that include pickup windows so that people can just quickly walk up and grab what they need and go. So we're trying to be ahead of, from a des- it, it just strictly from a design standpoint, we're trying to get ahead of what the needs are to help drive traffic to uh, these restaurant tenants. Those walk-up windows are ha- happening. Yeah. You know, I remember Tasty Burger did it years ago mm-hmm. down in the Fenway and I go, oh, you're out of your mind. People aren't going to walk up and grab a, no, they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you talk about, but you talk about the evolution of outdoor, I mean, who would have thought in Massachusetts, that people would want to sit outside in March and April or October, November. But, you know, that was something that happened in the pandemic and it's kind of here to stay. I yeah. mean, some people needed to do it, but a lot of people have made it part of their of their business plan, whether they're there, whether it's heaters, et cetera. And then revitalizing outdoor space. Mm-hmm. You know, how much effort do you put into bringing more things outdoor to bring people there to patronize the restaurants? Are there, you know, there's community events, there's, um, you know, et cetera. That, sure. that seems to be like the next step of, the, the, the landlord relationship, yes, which is bringing people in, bringing events in to patronize the restaurants as it's happening. You know, I will say Federal Realty as a company has always been, in my opinion, at the forefront from a, a, a real estate design standpoint. When we look at our shopping centers or our mixed-use neighborhoods, we always think about those, what we call them outdoor living rooms. So we want to encourage a sense of place. We want to encourage people to come spend time and and feel comfortable walking, you know, our neighborhoods or our shopping centers. So it has become a very important, uh, it's, it's almost a, a necessary part of our design conversations as we think about how we build or how we merchandise our shopping centers. We always talk about uh, restaurant growth and restaurant retraction. And, 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 and every restaurateur that has a lot of success has had some restaurants that they've had to close and had to move on from. As someone who has had that, that roller coaster of mm-hmm. opening a bunch of places, pulling back on a couple others, when do you pull the plug? When do you realize that a place maybe doesn't work out and we have to, you know, reevaluate and go someplace else? I like to think of it as being a cautious optimist as opposed mm-hmm. to a pessimist. And what you try and do is you figure out what is the least amount that you need to survive. That's not necessarily earning an income. That's to keep people employed, pay the rent, keep the lights on, and take care of the community. And you can carry a, a unit for a long time as long as you're structured that way. Mm-hmm. It, it comes down to how much money you spent in a build-out. What is your debt load? What products are you purchasing? What are you paying people? And in, as long as you're working tight numbers, you can carry stuff for a while. But, and I have, I've had this exact thing happen, and it's interesting that we talk about being on the water in Seaport. I at one time owned a restaurant, bar and a marina, that looked at Boston. And it was super successful. And then as Seaport started, first year, down 20%. Second year, down another 20%. And it was seasonal business, most of it. Now seasonality is a lot different, right? But I used to say, it's not really, I always thought it was about the Boston skyline. You could look in at the city. It wasn't about that. It was about being on the water. Because if you're looking out from Seaport, you're looking at water. Looking in from Charlestown, you're looking at a skyline. And I just watched it and I said, okay, uh, I got three years left, 20%, uh, another 10, uh, I'm done with this lease. So you don't renew. So it's really paying attention to what's going on. Or you take the opportunity to reposition it and say, okay, this is what's going on now. Um, and I, I, my first lease at Assembly Row is uh, Papagayo. It's 10 years old right now. So you say, okay, what am I going to do with that? 
Am I going to keep it as Papagayo? Am I going to do a, a revamp of it? Is, am I going to um, take the whole place and I'll call it a lipstick job, job, but change it, stay in the same genre? But right now it is the oldest business in yeah. the project. Mm -hmm. So you say to yourself, I'm tired of looking at it too. You know, <laughs> I'm sure the people that have been there, like you got to keep things new and exciting. And, and I think that's sometimes you use what's going on in your world and what's also um, not just socially, but in the demographics of food and beverage, what else is going on out there? And, and that segment has been redefined by a lot of amazing operators. So you pay attention to what they're doing and say, oh, okay, the math makes sense. Let's do it again. Yeah, everything rebrands after a certain amount of time, yeah. right? I mean, in order to stay fresh, mm -hmm. you kind of have to. Yeah. yeah. And then how is that conversation from the landlord perspective? Uh, you know, they, the landlord might say, oh, that's a successful concept. Why do you want to change it? You know, how does that, how does that back and forth go? Is it a give and take? Is it a... No, I want you to, you need to stay this because it's that well, or they, is it? They know. They know. <laughs> they know what they, they know. They might know before the operator yeah, knows. They probably, awesome. probably do. Well, and that's actually quite true. I mean, in many cases, we track sales from our tenants, our mm -hmm. restaurants and, and retailers. So we usually have a good gauge of how they're performing and, and what the trends are. And, and so we can plan ahead when we know a lease might be expiring, we can engage with the tenant and start having, you know, get those conversations going so that we can figure out, you know, look, your sales have dropped 20% or whatever it might be, but you're a great operator. You know, you, we enjoy this relationship. How are you thinking about your future in this property? And so to Chris's point, you know, he's, we're, we're having these conversations well in advance. Sure. Um, but in some cases, you know, usually if a restaurant is really performing well, they don't, want to reconcept. I mean, from my experience on the, the landlord side, um, it's usually something is not, you know, performing well, and in, in, in which case we want them to, to reinvest and shift their focus into rebranding or whatever it is, because, you know, if our restaurants are doing well, then effectively the whole property should be doing well since they're driving so much of the traffic. So somebody would make the case that you've got all of this beautiful uh, retail space that uh, is up for lease. Do you ever, do you, does Federal ever think about getting into the restaurant business themselves or do they leave that to the restaurateurs? It's a great question. In some cases, in some instances, we have partnered with restaurants as more of a sort of silent investor, but we don't really do that anymore, you know, with the cost of capital and everything else. But if, if there's a, a property that's, you know, a, a new ground up development where we need to secure two or three game changer restaurant tenants, we will definitely think creatively about how we get that deal done. So what happens next? You know, you have a very well run, well built out place. And I don't even know, is Assembly Row fully built out? Is, is, is there more on the horizon? We have one more phase. Okay. Uh, so that's, and then after that, you know, we're looking way ahead at what we do with, you know, the marketplace, Assembly Square marketplace. And, uh, you know, there's a ton of new development happening right now that we don't own and control, but that's within walking distance of Assembly. So it's, a, it's very exciting. Um, yes. So, yeah, so that's, did that, yeah, that, 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 that was, yeah. that was a for that location, but yeah. you know, other, other, non-assembly row locations on the horizon, you know, the other, could assembly row be replicated someplace else in Massachusetts? Is, is the, is the um, focus on that type of thing or is sure. it just run what you have or is it expand? I think we're, we're content with what we have. Um, I don't see us building another assembly row in this market anytime soon. Um, we own about uh, eight other shopping centers, in, at least at the, I oversee eight other shopping centers in this region. And so we're really focused on reinvesting and improving those assets. And how do we 
reposition restaurants that might need, you know, to be replaced in some cases? How do we, again, you know, reinvigorate some of our existing properties? So that's really the focus. And, and to your earlier question about the outdoor space, you know, we, Linden Square in Wellesley is, is another one. That's another one of my properties. And we just, you know, finished a $7 million uh, renovation of the property to improve those outdoor living rooms and, and placemaking and better signage for tenants and increase the outdoor seating area for our restaurants. And so that's really where our focus is now. What does the shopping center of the future look like? I think it's assembly row. Mm -hmm. I do. I think it's very similar to that, where you have that live, work, play type of offering. Close to public transportation Close to public transit. You know, it doesn't hurt that we're on the Mystic River. I never thought I'd hear myself saying that growing up there. Even the producers of the movie Mystic (laughs) River probably didn't think that that as well. (laughs) But having all of those amenities, uh, I think, is where... That's where the future is for if real estate. You, if you look at those lifestyle centers around the Beltway, yeah, I mean, they've got outdoor movie theaters. There's a bunch of green space. Everybody's got outdoor space down there. I know the weather's a little bit warmer down, down there. Right. But I think the major question is, when are you going to put the gondola system in or from uh, Assembly Road to the, the Encore? That's the million-dollar question. Well, I mean, it's like it takes you three hours to get around yeah. from, from there to there. Yeah, it's very deceiving when I walk the property with tenants and, and brokers or whoever, and they say, oh, I didn't realize you had a casino here. I said, oh, no, it's actually, you know, half an hour away from <laughs> here if you're driving. For sure. Um, so I don't think they're planning to do the gondola. The last I heard, and we're, federal is not involved in this at all. It's between the state and the city of Somerville, but um, in, in Everett. Uh, from what I understand, they're planning a pedestrian footbridge to connect the uh, one of the head houses of the T-Station at Assembly to Encore, which I think will be great. So we got to put video cameras over that to see the people walking back, whether they're skipping or they got their head down. <laughs> right. And, and then there's so much opportunity for development happening over there. Or jumping. Oh, yeah, right. or jumping. <laughs> but you have, you know, the, the, the Kraft family looking at a potential soccer stadium. Mm-hmm. There's uh, Encore wants to expand themselves. Just unbelievable development happening yeah. in that in that area. It's 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 exciting that yeah. it's happening, but it creates more competition. Yeah, so, sure. Uh, it has to keep everyone uh, on their game. What's next for you? Oh, just... Plugging right along. Plugging along. You know, Look, looking for new opportunities, right? Always looking, always listening. Um, I'm probably looking towards, uh, I just opened a restaurant, I don't know, eight months ago. Um, so we're working on really uh, solidifying the talent behind that. And uh, I might end up re- repositioning one of my other restaurants. It's just, uh, it's up in the air right now. It's still, it's still trying times, like when you talk about cost of capital and all that type labor, of stuff. So food, labor, capital, food, yeah. everything. Um, so it's really about dialing the operations in and being as efficient, as smart as, as you can with it. So um, I'd love to go back to that growth phase back in the day when I think I opened four restaurants in 18 months at one time. Like, mm-hmm. look back at that and say, it was before gray hair, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, we're going to get you out of here on the Sprague Energy Lightning Round. Fast questions coming Ooh, at you. Uh-oh. Um, before we get into the spray again, I'm going to give you a dedicated question as a chef. Favorite thing to prepare? Favorite thing for me to prepare? Yeah. Depends on the time. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, like, deep fried turkey, no one ever heard of it up here, but I was doing that in the late 80s. So I'd say something like that would be fun. Now everybody does it. Now probably homemade pasta or homemade ravioli, something Italian that was really homey. Um, fresh tomato pan sauce. Awesome. Fresh basil from the garden. Shaved Romano. What, time, what, what, what time's dinner? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we went rogue. We went rogue on our Sprague Energy question. We have, sometimes we have dedicated questions for chefs, so yeah. that's why we went there. So, okay, it's your last meal on earth. What are you having? 
Big steak. steak. Yeah, big juicy. Wrong with okay. that? Yeah. Yep. What do you have? I'm probably something like that. I'm, I'm going surf and turf, though. Okay. Oh. It's going to be maybe caviar with bone marrow and a fried oyster and crusty bread as an appetizer, and then maybe beef wellington as a dinner. Chris, wow. you need to start doing videos for yeah. you. Wow. Exactly. Because if you notice, I just started talking <laughs> with my hands. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm like you're feeling I, the excitement. Just, yeah. just don't bang the table. No, or I, yeah. <laughs> we have very tight, right? Very, uh, a lot of rules at the MRA podcast. Um, what's your ideal vacation spot? I like a place where I can unplug, and I can't do it unless I'm on a plane. So I'd say Mexico, probably something like that. And truthfully, a lot of my history with the food and beverage segment for me is water cafes years sure. ago. Yeah. So since 1987, Mexico. Anywhere in Europe, Italy. I'd love to get to Italy in the next couple of months with the family. But uh, yeah, I, you know, we do the island trips every year, and I think now it's time to Get out and see the world. Italy's hot. A lot of people go to Italy yeah. uh, I did, we recently. Did, Carrie yeah. did it recently. Did you? We oh. did 10 days on the Amalfi Coast. Oh, it was awesome. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Who has inspired you the most? Oh, gosh, these questions. Um, you know what? It's, there's not really just one person. I will say there, are, there is a, a, a very talented pool of strong, smart, talented women in my industry um, who have sort of paved the way for the next generation of, of women, you know, retail, real estate people. And so I, I, I keep in touch with a lot of my former mentor mentors. And, you know, I think that they, and I let them know how much they mean to me and how, you know, how much I value what they've done for our side of things. I would have to say my dad, and it's over some things that, you know, I'm one of seven, the struggles that they had as parents trying to raise kids on one salary. And uh, he'd said to me a long time ago, live your life like you're writing your epitaph every day. Mm. Now, interestingly enough, I don't always live my life that way, but I strive to be the man that he was. It's amazing. If uh, you're drinking something, what are you drinking? Back to the depending when. Margarita or martini, both with M's. What are you drinking? New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Okay. Sure. <laughs> or, or cocktails. I was say, I didn't bring that. Or, or I, one of Chris's uh, famous cocktails. Yeah, I didn't get that memo. I would have yeah. had a bottle for you. <laughs> What's your go-to type of cuisine? Italian, it's just comfort food. Yeah. I'd have to agree. With that or seafood. Yeah. Okay. This is the tricky one. This one you got to think on. Do I need another sip? You might need a sip. <laughs> if you could have dinner with anyone, living or dead, oh who's at the gosh, table with this you? Question. Um, mm, I would have to say probably my uncle, who passed away at a very early age. He was a, a prominent architect in Boston. Um, he, I was young when he passed away, and I think it would be really interesting to connect with him and show him what I've been up to all these years. That's awesome. Yep. I'd probably say Abe Lincoln. Okay. Put together a team of people that would normally work together well, yeah. and it's a metaphor for what we're doing. Day Cabinet day of his day. opponents, exactly. right? Yeah. yeah, team of rivals. Yeah. Absolutely. So. That's it. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. So we have Liz Ryan, Vice President of Regional Leasing Federal Realty. Chris Damien, chef owner, Papagayo, SIP, Civility Social House. Thank you very much for Thank joining you. us in today's episode. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you both. Yeah. Thanks for having us. All right. Good job. Can we top the table now? Steve, with marketing being one of the Achilles heels for restaurateurs, who's our go-to for marketing, public relations, and social media? That's going to be our great friends at IUC, Image Unlimited Communications. Maddie, where can we find you? Uh, you can find us on socials at IUC Boston. Or also on web, IUCBoston.com. Thanks, Lily. Yeah. <laughs> IUC. Woo. <laughs> Follow us.